Our scripture reading today, John 21, we'll begin reading in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. We're going to return to this story in John 21 in just a few moments. But before we do, have you ever tasted defeat in a way that has stuck with you? Maybe even for years. And perhaps I'm alone in this because of my, at times, overly self-critical mind and my penchant for anxious thoughts. But There are particular moments in my life, maybe it was a serious failure or just a really embarrassing or devastatingly awkward moment, but I can actually think even now of some of those specific instances and feel all of those emotions from that event that was years ago. I feel all of those well up within me. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think in reflecting on moments of failure, moments of inadequacy, it can at times be difficult to move beyond the discomfort of the memory and get to a place where we can use that negative experience as motivation for change or motivation to do things differently in the future or maybe as a simple reminder of the type of person we hope to become. We could think of it this way. Most of us were probably very different people in high school. I I would hope so. And It's quite possible that the best friends we had in high school, maybe especially if you moved away from your hometown, the the friends that you spent every day of your life with as a teenager, it's quite possible that they wouldn't even recognize the person you are today because we change. Hopefully, we change. And our past, maybe our failures or who we were when we were younger, it, it doesn't have to control us. It doesn't have to define us, but the question we are presented with is, will we allow it to? Do we feel at times trapped by our own history, or is it possible to move into new and fresh territory and make significant changes? Of course, we can't undo the past. That's a futile endeavor, but does the past have to control us or define us for the future. 
And I think in our gospel reading today, we are going to find one of the disciples, actually one of the most prominent leaders of the early church, who experiences something similar as he finds himself at this crossroads trying to reconcile the past, a moment of failure, a moment of serious failure with what his life was going to look like in the future. And I think we find in his example, in his encounter with Jesus, I think that might inform us as we seek to navigate some of those moments in our lives in a productive way. So let's return to this story from John chapter 21. We find the disciples once again meet with Jesus, the risen Lord, in Galilee. On this occasion, we see that there are several of the the apostles that have gathered. We see Simon Peter, who this story is going to focus on. We see Thomas, the twin, who we looked at and talked about last week, and there are a few others with them. And they appear to just be passing the time twiddling their thumbs, as it were, likely still processing everything that is happening. Perhaps they're questioning their judgment, questioning maybe even their sanity. Have we really seen Jesus? It's just so unbelievable. Eventually, Peter apparently can't take the stillness. He can't take this moment of tranquility. Yes, what what are we doing? I've got to do something. I I can't just sit here. Let's go fishing. Let's go fishing. Have you ever been there? I haven't in terms of fishing, but I have been there (laughs) sitting on my hands, unsure of what to do, waiting for maybe a highly anticipated outcome or something like that. My initial inclination, though, in those moments is not, let's get the fishing poles and the fish. I, I think I've been fishing I don't know, lifetime, maybe once or twice, and that's it. So my initial thought is not, let's go fishing. For some of you, that may be the first thing you think about during a moment of inactivity. But for Peter, this all makes sense. This was his life before leaving it all behind to follow Jesus full time several years earlier. Peter had been a professional and quite successful fisherman. This was his livelihood. He knew the waters. He loved and thrived in a life out at sea. And so Peter, on this occasion with the other apostles, they head out into what for them was the comfortable waters of the sea, a place they felt at home. This occasion, though, something strange happens. They fish all night and catch nothing. Now, for a guy like me, Going out fishing and returning empty-handed is nothing to write home about. That is actually the precise outcome I would expect if I went fishing. But for professional fishermen, this was rather unusual. And maybe this story is sounding a little bit familiar. Matthew and Luke tell us a story like this the night before Jesus calls Peter to follow him at the beginning of his ministry a few years before. But here they are out in the boat, out at sea, right before dawn, exhausted and probably frustrated by the lack of success. And they see somebody on the shore who calls out to them, children, have you caught any fish? They respond, no, we haven't. And don't call me child. I don't know who you are. But the conversation then continues with this mystery man on the shore. 
He calls back out, well, then cast your net on the other side of the boat. Okay, that's going to do a lot. If, if I was in their position, my response probably would have been something along the lines of, all right, lunatic, that will surely fix it. We just need to move the net a couple of feet. You may not know, but this isn't our first rodeo. We are professionals. We have crafted and finely tuned our methods of fishing. We know what we're doing. And maybe some of the thoughts that are flooding their minds are similarly dismissive. We, we don't know for sure. Either way, either out of genuine curiosity or just to appease this stranger on the shore, they agree to give it a shot. And the miraculous occurs. A few yards difference in placement of the net makes all the difference. They catch so many fish, we're told, that they have a difficult time hauling it all in. And presumably at that point, John speaks up, says, it's got to be our Lord. We've seen this thing before. It is Jesus. And when Peter hears the words out of John's mouth, likely confirming what he was already thinking, he throws on his clothes, jumps into the sea, and makes his way to the shore. We continue reading where we've left off during our scripture reading, verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. I want to pause there, reread it. They saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now, John is doing something incredible here on a literary level. When, when the apostles arrive on the shore... Early the morning of this miraculous catch, the first thing they discover, we are told, is this charcoal fire. Yeah, there's some fish and there's some bread laid out, but the charcoal fire, it seems like an insignificant and maybe even unnecessary detail. But for Peter, who this story is going to be focusing on, for Peter, perhaps nothing could have been more jarring more devastating than this charcoal fire. You see the charcoal fire burning here on the shore with Jesus laying out the fish and the bread harkens back to a, another charcoal fire that involved Peter and his Lord. And that occasion, as you know, wasn't Peter's best moment. I would imagine that Peter had already been rehearsing the events from the past few days over and over again in his mind, remembering but maybe trying to forget his great moment of failure. You probably remember that story that John tells us back in chapter 18. Just before the crucifixion of Jesus, we find Jesus meeting with his disciples in this garden where they often met. Only on this occasion, Jesus is arrested. Judas has betrayed him, has procured some soldiers and officers from the high priests and the Pharisees. They've been tipped off. They know precisely where to find Jesus, and they arrive on the scene with torches blazing and weapons drawn. Now, in what seems to be a moment of courage, at the outset, we find Peter who draws his sword and strikes Malchus, the servant of the high priest, on the face and cuts his ear off. We see Jesus respond to Peter, 
I don't need your protection. Put your sword away, rebukes Peter, but is subsequently arrested. They drag Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, and Peter and John follow closely behind their Lord. John, who was a, from, from a well-known and highly respected family in Jerusalem, was able to gain access into the courtyard, and he gets John in with him. It's like somebody that has some connections at a concert venue that's able to get their friend backstage or something along those lines. That's probably a terrible analogy, but you see where I'm going with that. He was able to gain access into the courtyard for him and for Peter. Now remember, John is recording these events. John is writing this gospel account, and he was on the scene in this courtyard. And what were the circumstances of this fateful event? Well, it was chilly outside. We find Peter warming himself by a charcoal fire. There it is. Warming himself by a charcoal fire when he denies his Lord one, two, three times, and then the rooster crows. Fast forward several days. John chapter 21, our story for this morning. Here Peter is. After the resurrection, surely in this place of existential crisis, who am I? What does all of this mean? And he comes in from this night of fishing to find Jesus once again by a charcoal fire. His heart must be racing, his mind playing over the events. This is eerily familiar. Here Jesus is on the shore right in front of Peter, his master and his friend, yes, but also the one he denied at that critical juncture. Surely the question is replaying in Peter's mind, is it possible for our relationship to be restored? Can I ever be trusted again? I mean, I demonstrated such a lack of loyalty and faithfulness and friendship at that crucial juncture in the life of my Lord. Can he ever love me again? Comes in from his night of fishing to find Jesus by the charcoal fire. What will Christ's response be? We see it in verse 10. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Surely Peter's thinking, well, it could be worse than this. At least the first thing out of his mouth wasn't a recounting of my failure, but instead was simply, bring the fish over. Verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I just loved that part of the story. Come on over, let's share breakfast. Christ has been crucified and killed, was dead for a few days, conquered the grave, and is raised to new life. And 
in the first few stories we have post-resurrection, what do we see Jesus wanting? He wants to spend time with the disciples sharing a meal. And not only is this just a time of friendship and fellowship, but it is also a time when Christ is revealing himself, his true identity to his followers. That Christ is revealed. We, we see it here on the shore. We see it in Luke's gospel as Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of his disciples and they don't know who the, this man walking with them is and it's not until he breaks bread with them that their eyes are opened to the reality of Jesus walking with them. This is clearly a critical piece of these encounters. And I think it's quite meaningful for us as well because I still believe that we find and meet Jesus, that our eyes are open to the presence of Christ in us and all around us through the meal that we will share together in just a moment around the Lord's table, through the lunch that we will share across from one another following that. Our eyes are opened to the real presence of Christ that is here with us today. Let's get back to the story. Because now John really starts to focus in on the building tension between Jesus and Peter. All that has transpired between them. Peter must have been troubled in his soul during this breakfast on the shore. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Simon, do you love me more than these? Jesus questions Peter here in John 21 three times concerning his love. Is this accidental or incidental? I don't think it can be. The scene is already mirroring the night of Peter's denial with the charcoal fire. And just as Peter denied Christ three times, Jesus asks his question three times, giving Peter again three opportunities to express his love and commitment to Christ. This really is quite incredible. But there's something else in the episode that is rather curious that we miss when we're reading the text in English, as most of us are. And it has to do with the word that is translated in this story as love. 
So Jesus asks his question of Peter three times. Peter answers the question three times. So we find the word love six times in this conversation. And don't worry, we're not getting into some end times numerology here, okay? But I do think the numbers, I think this is significant what's going on here. If you look closely at the original language this story is written in, you we actually find two different words translated for the word love. Two different words. Now, for the original audience, this would not have gone unnoticed. Surely they would hear this story and their ears would perk up. This must be intentional. Something must be going on here. Let's pay attention. So we consider those words. The the first word, the word that Peter uses throughout this conversation comes from another, comes from the Greek word phileo, which points to this idea of brotherly love. We're all familiar with the American city, Philadelphia, right? The, the city of brotherly love. This is a word that points to the type of love we have for one another within Christian community. Obviously, it is love, but it is a different type of love than you might have for a spouse. Or maybe even it's a different type of love than the love that's at work within your immediate family between a parent and child. So there are different aspects of love at work within these various relationships. So that's the first word we have translated as love. The other word for love, which Jesus uses in his first two questions, is from the root agapao which points to, you, you may have heard the word agape, which points to the perfectly pure, the sacrificial, the unconditional love that is expressed in the divine love that God is, in the divine love that God exhibits for humankind, agape. So back to the story. Jesus, sharing this meal with the disciples, on the shore, sharing a meal with Peter, the elephant in the room, or on the shore in this case, they both know that just a few days earlier, Peter denied Jesus three times. And now it's as if Jesus three times is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? Two of those times asking Peter, do you love me with a perfect, an unconditional, an unwavering love. How is Peter supposed to answer that in the affirmative, at least in a way that is honest? Can, can he really honestly say that he loves Jesus with an unconditional, unwavering love after just having denied him? He responds, Jesus, you, you know that I love you, phileo. You know that I have this brotherly affection for you. And the second time, it's the same response from Peter to the question. And so the third time, Jesus switches it up a bit. He asks the question, but he switches to Peter's word of choice. says, Peter, in essence, are you my friend? Do you love me with a brotherly love? And Peter responds, you know everything, Jesus. You know 
that I love you. It's as though Jesus is slowly inviting Peter after his moment of failure into this new reality, into this fresh existence, the possibility of something new. His past doesn't have to define him anymore. And he responds, you know that I love you. And Jesus then commissions him for his work of ministry. If you love me, show that love. Prove your love for me by loving my people. Feed my sheep. Care for my lambs. Now, some have argued that all of this would be reading too much into the story. That John is just using these two different words for the same idea of love sort of haphazardly, and it doesn't necessarily have any deeper meaning. Part of me just finds that difficult to believe in this context where John is obviously connecting this conversation between Jesus and Peter on the seashore with that fateful event around the charcoal fire on the night before the crucifixion of Jesus when Peter's, Peter denies him. And if that's the case, if there is a connection between these two events, if this is an important part of the narrative, what might it mean? Remember earlier in the story, Peter had boasted, Jesus, even if all of these others stop following you, I'll never deny you. I will never abandon you. I will always be right by your side. And just a few moments later, Peter denies Jesus three times. Surely after the resurrection of Christ, Peter is thrilled like the other apostles, but he has to be a little concerned as well. Can our relationship ever be the same after my moment of failure? Can we ever be close again? Is Jesus ever going to trust me again? Is love actually a possibility in this relationship after my denial? We see in this story Jesus who knows all things, encourages Peter, invites Peter, opens the door to reconciliation, invites Peter to reaffirm his love for Christ three times. Did Peter have an unwavering, unconditional love for Christ? I mean, he failed in that regard. But he still had a deep love for Jesus. He was still a friend of Christ and wanted to nurture that friendship. And Jesus, in this series of questions, expresses his heart of forgiveness. Peter, your past doesn't define you. Follow me. There is still the opportunity for change. There is still the potential for a loving relationship. Follow me welcomes Peter back and sends him out to build the church. This morning, like Peter, you are invited into the forgiving love of our God. This is who Jesus is. This is who God is. We serve a God who forgives. God for whom it's never too late. 
He's opening the door, welcoming you back, inviting you. A God who forgives the most unimaginable evil, the harmful activities that I have participated in. A God who forgives the most unimaginable and damnable evil of others. He forgives. He invites you back. I think one of the things that can be a barrier of entry to the Christian faith, to following the resurrected Christ, is the assumption that my past, the things I've done, the things I've thought, the words that have come out of my mouth, that this prevents me from having a relationship with Jesus. My past is either is just too bad, either in quality or quantity. I'm a lost cause. God can't forgive all of these things. God's love can't be big enough for me. I'm not worthy of that love. The reality is none are worthy of the unconditional love and the ever-forgiving love of God, and yet he loves. During the season of Lent, we talked at length about the issue of evil, the issue of human sin, and the fact that it's not just out there, but it's right here in my heart. And as we think about that reality, I want to encourage you this morning, at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus, there is forgiveness of sins. There is the opportunity to start afresh, to begin again, your past doesn't have to define you or keep you boxed in, just as Jesus invites Peter to move beyond his moment of failure that directly impacted Christ. I believe Jesus is inviting you, even now. Confess your sins. Repent and believe the good news. There is forgiveness of sins, even for Peter even for you, even for me. Would you stand this morning?